This episode is brought to you by the Bowers & Wilkins PX7S2 wireless headphones. Hear what your music really sounds like. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. But this one's somewhat spontaneous because Srejan Ibain from Six Moons joins us once again because he wasn't entirely happy with his contribution to the last podcast about the Shanling M3 Ultra. So welcome back, Srejan. Thank you. Um, I don't think you were that bad, but it, you know. But if you want to, if you want to fill in some blanks, I'm, I'm all for it. Yes, I felt that maybe I rambled too much or didn't get my point across succinctly enough. So I uh, wrote a follow-on article for Six Moons after we did our last taping. Uh, mm -hmm. Because based on some of your responses to what I said, I realized that I wasn't quite as clear as I could have been. And so I thought I called that article Deconstructing a Music Server. Mm -hmm. So what actually constitutes a music server? And I came up with just really four basic parts. Mm -hmm. One, we need to store our files. So we need some form of memory. Then we need some sort of software to access the files and process all going formats, whether it's DSD or DXD or PCM, all the different sample rates that we may have files in. We need a graphic user interface so that we can actually navigate through our library. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we need a digital output that communicates with a DAC of our choice. I want to I want to just jump in on here be, on a technicality because I, I I know you use the term file server, but when you've got a USB output inside the box, so right, the DAC interface, I call that a server streamer because for me, a server is something that stores the files on a hard drive or a solid state drive and the GUI allows us to index those files browse those files choose hit play pause so it's like the just the the mechanics of i guess music access and file playback but then once the the file is sent into the DAC i call that the streaming component because those two could be separated and you'd have, let's say, a network streamer connected to your DAC in your hi-fi rack, and the server portion could be, I don't know, in a cupboard or upstairs in an office or whatever. Whereas I think what you're talking about is all-in-one in the same box, a bit like how maybe like Inuus would make one of those or Antipodes Audio. They would put both the, the, the DAC interface and the storage and obviously the operating system in a single box. Do you see what I mean? Do you see why yes. I'm why I'm separating those two things out, even though they are technically in the same unit? Yes, understood. Because I know you don't do network playback. So for you, when you get a, a music server slash streamer, it really is all in one all the time, right? Because you need to access it without Wi-Fi. Correct, and that's where very often I actually run into issues accepting such a machine. Mm. For example, a month ago, Lumen wanted me to review one of their newest music 
streamer servers. Mm. And when I explained to them that I had an iMac and that everything mm. had to be hardwired and how would I interface with the iMac, they flat out told me that it couldn't be done. Because the one, com one computer can't communicate to another computer directly. You have to go through the network, which in my case would have meant sending music from the iMac into my router, back from the router, back into the machine that I was supposed mm -hmm. to review. And then I would still do all the accessing of the files through my iMac. So it was like a redundant detour through my router only to expose my files to the noise of the internet. So they told me flat out, if you have a computer and you're using it like you do, then our machine is not for you. Right. Because you can access some servers like that using a web interface. So Correct. you could have a, um, yeah, a web browser on your Mac, and then it could talk remotely to the, the, the server streamer in your rack. And your Mac would tell the server streamer what file to pull from its own storage and send out of USB or coax or AES-EBU. But I think what you were talking about in the last episode, and I think what you've covered in your article about deconstructing a, a music server is that you with, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, Sujan, but you with your iMac, USB out into a sing, I don't know how you say it, singster or singer, USB bridge and then AES EBU out of that into a DAC, you found that that is very rarely convincingly trounced in terms of sound quality by the digital output of a file server streamer that you've had there that costs 10 or 20 grand. Is that right? That, that is correct. And today I was looking uh, online to see that if I wanted to replace my old iMac, which mm. let's say for argument's sake that it cost me 3,500 euros some mm. eight years ago. 27 inch 4K Retina display, three terabyte fusion drive on board, mm. right? So I have 3,500 euros invested in that. Now, if somebody wanted to send me a music streamer server for review, mm. and they were hoping that I would find that it just sort of blows my iMac solution out of the water, <laughs> but it was like most of those music server streamers, a headless piece. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to now duplicate my existing display, I would have mm -hmm. to buy uh, an iMac display. I went online mm -hmm. today and the current 27 inch iMac display, just the display is 1800 mm -hmm. euros. Right, okay. So if I subtract 1800 euros from the 3500 euros that I have invested in my iMac, that leaves me just let's call it 2000 euros mm. for a competing music server streamer right that now is supposed to outperform what i have and that has that has never happened not at 2000 euros not at 5000 euros not at 10000 euros because what audio audio on my imac does mm. it spins mm. down the drive i have 32 gigabytes of ram that i installed in my imac Mm -hmm. I have a lot of RAM and an entire playlist or album gets read into the buffer. Yes. And then the, the drive stops spinning, which is exactly what these expensive music servers do as well. They buffer the music that you want to listen to. Very often they put actually the operating system on one drive and then the music gets buffered on another drive completely separate. Mm. 
and then they will reclock that buffer. The reclocking I do outboard in my sinks the USB bridge. Mm-hmm. And that only costs me from 499 for this or 469 for the small version to 699 for the quote unquote flagship version that runs on ultra capacitor power, sort of like a virtual battery power supply. Mm. So I've got all the functionality and features without spending ridiculous money on a so-called audiophile streamer server that is headless, which mm. then still needs to be outfitted with a display and a mouse and a for keyboard. You, yes. Yeah, yeah. For me. Yeah. Yes. And since I have that high of an opinion of the iMac plus Audio of Honor to bypass mm. iTunes or any anything else, plus my external USB bridge, I was now in a good position to actually say that if I replace the iMac and Audio of Honor with that little channeling, mm-hmm. I don't suffer any, any sound quality losses that I can hear. The mm. only thing that I lose is a three terabyte drive because now I'm right. down to whatever memory card I want to stick in there. And I just mm. checked today, just before you and I started, and a one terabyte SanDisk Ultra mini micro SD card on Amazon UK retails for 128 euros. Mm-hmm. Now, one terabyte, that's a lot of music. It is. I only, I only use a 128 gigabyte card at the moment. And like we said last time, I've got 200 folders on there. And one of those folders contains 21 albums all by itself. And two other folders contain 200 tracks each. Mm. So I have now a very hard time getting excited about expensive audiophile music service streamers. Because so far, I have not found that they offer me more functionality. And I have not really found that they offer me better sound quality. Because also the thing that I have with the iMac is I already have access to Cobas and Tidal and YouTube, and Spotify, mm-hmm. without any additional software or program or routing involved, mm. I can just log on on my browser. Whereas if I have a headless machine, I have to do all of that in a different way. So it doesn't really add anything. So if we break down your iMac solution, I would say the iMac itself is the actual server component. And then maybe the Audifana playback engine, so the way it routes its way around core audio inside the Mac OS Mm -hmm. so that it doesn't really get touched by the Mac OS as it goes out over USB. And then also your Syncster USB bridge. So the the playback engine from Audifana, the Syncster USB, uh, USB bridge, I would put those two together and say that's the streamer component of what you're using. And then Audivana's interface, where you navigate your library or Kobo's library or Tidal's library, is the file server. And the, obviously, the hard drive inside the iMac is the storage of that file mm-hmm. server. Now, the sound quality is dictated by Audivana's playback engine and the Singster USB bridge, right? Now, when it comes to, say, like a dedicated headless server streamer solution, 
you're right. They do cost what five grand, ten grand, twenty grand. I think they're going to go even further north than that. I think that many of them, in my experience, many of those, their USB output and also the software, so like the Audivana playback engine equivalent inside those, generally speaking, does beat in terms of sound quality by a very small margin what I've used in sort of like your iMac type situation. So a MacBook plus a USB bridge of, of my own. I use a Resonance Lab and a Wired for Sound and things like that. But I think you're right in saying that the value proposition of those big, you know, those dedicated headless server streamers, it, it's it's tough going for most people, even many dyed-in-the-wool audiophiles like ourselves, because you're looking to make this multi-thousand dollar leap and you do take a hit to the ease of access to music because really nothing beats a computer if it's in front of you. I mean, many, I don't want a, an iMac in my rack or a MacBook in my rack, but if it was near off to my side, I might be a little bit more comfortable with that. That's where I have mine, by the way. It's right yeah. next to my chair. Right. I've seen it in fo many photos that you post, yeah. But I think I understand where you're coming from with you know this, just getting a seven hundred dollar Singstone go, it's got ultra cat power inside. I mean, I know that you know the engineers at Inuus and Antipodes will probably fight you on whether that's as good as what they do in their in their machines. But the other thing that you've touched on here is the headless nature of those machines, because even if you did connect a monitor to those headless machines, they would only give you a command line on the screen. There would be no GUI because they, I think they strip out a lot of that to keep the Linux operating system as lean as possible. So there is no GUI, even if you did buy your fancy um, Apple monitor, which you're right, they are very expensive, but they are very nice to look at and very fast as well. But I, I understand why why you say that the the little Shanling plus the Sings to USB bridge is a, is a killer combination for not much more than a thousand euros in terms right. of value for money. You wouldn't get a dedicated server streamer beating that. I wouldn't think you might get a streamer that might sound, yeah, pretty close, but then you still need the server component, which as you say, you know, storage of a hard drive, that's a, you know, a hundred bucks or so. And then you've got to have a computer that actually manages that for you. I mean, many of us have got old laptops knocking about, but I, I'm always torn between just assuming that's a, a given in most households and being too glib about that kind of money and that kind of thing just knocking about. But it's it's a very complicated process, and I think it's you know you, breaking it down the way you have. And I did read your article about you know sort of deconstructing a file server. And you did say that I was ready to poo-poo that setup going into our last podcast, which is only half true, actually, because I was I still am not okay with being limited in my music choices by what you can fit on a micro SD card. I want the whole thing. I want all of my music available always just because uh, maybe it's the control freak in me. I don't know. But I you're you're right. I I I didn't expect your use of the Shanling and the Singster to be such a compelling proposition. But where my mind went when we were talking, and I didn't talk about it in that conversation, and maybe you'll let me do that now, 
is that I was thinking about, okay, on, on the Shanling myself, I install Spotify, Plexamp, and Runark. And obviously they're streaming apps. Ple um, Spotify talks to Spotify servers, but Plexamp and Runark can stream from my server at home. I won't go into the mechanics of that because it can be quite complicated for people whose home routers don't play ball. But if you know how to do a port forwarding, you should be okay. But anyway, so these are streaming apps, right? Now, so too is the Rune remote app. So for example, I could connect the Shanling to a, the DAC in my rack in front of me over USB. So I could go USB out of the Shanling into the DAC. I wouldn't use a USB bridge because I don't have one handy here right now. But then I could fire up, I think this is all hypothetical because I haven't tried it, but I might fire up the Spotify app. Now, when the Spotify app is running on that Shanling and the Shanling is connected to the network, I've got now got a Spotify endpoint connected to my DAC in the rack. So I can then use my phone from the comfort of my couch to send music to that Spotify endpoint. So now my Shanling device is a USB network streamer. Do you see what I mean? It's, it's a streaming mm -hmm. portion of the, of the equation. The server portion is the, the Spotify server. But it goes further than that because I could then, I, pro I would probably have to fire up the Rune remote app to do this. So I'd have to not necessarily close the Spotify app, but push, push go on the Rune app and then activate that. And then that Rune app is then a streaming endpoint, which I can then specify in my Rune server as a streaming endpoint. So now the Shanling is a Rune streaming endpoint, which I can use with my smartphone from the comfort of my couch to send music from my Rune server upstairs in my office to the Shanling in the rack. So the, the Rune server now is the, is the, the server and the Shanling is the, the streaming playback engine, right? So then the question would be, mm -hmm. is the operating system that Shanling have installed, the Android 10 mm -hmm. on the Snapdragon processor, processor mm -hmm. is that fast enough to handle Rune in the kind of speed that you're used to from your more sophisticated solutions? I would think so, yeah. I have, like I say, I haven't tried it. I mean, I could fire it up now, I guess, and just, just to see it as we talk. But I'm just talking about this from, I guess, more from a hypothetical point of view, because I think it's quite interesting, the possibilities that these, well, this particular, well, this particular product category, the, the portable audio player or the digital audio player can provide. But if it can play, so RuneArc is what I use when I'm out of the house. So that is the playback app outside of the house. So if this Shanling can use RuneArc to stream, so I mean, if I let me use Spotify because I don't have the Rune remote app installed on this device. So if I now pull up Spotify on my phone and then click play, and I'm going to play, I'm going to turn the volume down because I don't get a copyright strike or anything like that. So yes, so the if I click play on a on a on a Spotify stream on my phone, the Shanling M3 Ultra shows up as a possible network endpoint. So I click on that. Now the music stops on my phone and it should now be playing. And it is. Is it playing? Yes, it is playing. It's playing on my Shanling. Mm -hmm. So now I could actually just use the analog out if I wanted to. 
if I like the DAC in the, inside the Shanling and I have no reason not to. But if I had an external DAC that I thought was especially fancy, I could come USB out and go that way, you see. So this is, I guess, an extension of what you're doing. You wouldn't do this because you need Wi-Fi to do it. But it's still, essentially what we're doing is we're using the Shanling portable audio player as a network streamer. Mm -hmm. the, the, the file server portion of that mechanism runs elsewhere, either a Spotify server or a Rune server. And it works. I have to mention Plexamp as well, because Plexamp is a bit like Rune Arc in that you can access music stored on a server at home. It's your private streaming service. But Plexamp now also works in a way that one instance of Plexamp can stream or can facilitate a stream to another instance. So if I'm running Plexamp on my Shanling, it's in my rack, I can use Plexamp on my phone to tell my Plex server to send a stream to the Shanling in the rack. Do you see what I mean? So it, mm -hmm. it becomes this triangle, which is why I, I made I went to sort of very tedious lengths to separate file server from a streamer, because that's what I would be doing in those scenarios. Whereas you, as I've said, like you've, you're generally used to having them all in one or what's certainly wired close enough to consider them to be kind of an all-in-one thing, like your iMac and your things to USB bridge. Yeah, and the thing I should also add is that I'm really focused on locally hosted music because I'm one of the dinosaurs who still likes to own the music that they listen to, whereas the majority of people nowadays, they like to stream. They don't own the music. They just mm. sort of load it down off the cloud. Which yes. is it's a it's a different application altogether. It is, which is why I would have to call my use basically a, an offline, compact, portable, music server streamer. Yes, it's offline. Yes. It's offline. Yeah. Yes, that's right. But now, am I correct? Am I correct? Hearing some excitement in your voice about would you actually use it <laughs> in the way that you have just figured out that you could, like this add-on beyond my use, or is this just? Purely hypothetical. Yes, you can do it, but in reality, you actually wouldn't because you have more convenient solutions already. Well, uh, in my rack, well, I say it's my rack. It's actually a Kallax unit in front of me at the moment, but I've got an RME ADI FS2 DAC, mm -hmm. and then feeding that is a Blue Sound node. So I rune stream to the node. Now, if I didn't have the node, I could USB out of the channeling into the RME DAC, but I do have the node. And I guess I would probably stick with the node because I wouldn't want to necessarily manage the battery of the Shanling or constantly worrying about is it charged or is it not? Mm -hmm. Because obviously, I think this is right, the Shanling would have to send 5 volts or some power to the USB input of the RME DAC. And even if it's not an RME, let's say it was an AudioQuest Dragonfly or something like that, the Shanling would have to power the USB DAC to which it was attached. A bit like I think... This is the question I was about to ask you before. Does your Shanling power your Singster USB bridge? No, not at all. Okay, so it's it has its own power slipstreamed in from the mm -hmm. wall. Okay, okay, that makes sense. So what I found out that in my particular use as a as a server of locally hosted files that are actually mm. on the Shanling via the micro SD card, if I listen eight hours a day in this use. I get about three days worth of playtime. Okay. And that's why I was saying that I think that my use is probably the lowest possible power draw 
that you can sort of put on this device because we don't use the output stage. We don't drive a preamp. We don't drive a pair yes. of headphones. Yeah. So all of that sort of power consuming stuff, we bypass. And yes, there's a certain amount of power obviously going out USB. But mm -hmm. it does seem, the battery seems to be sufficient to, I mean, in my mind, if you listen 12 or 13 hours a day, and if that's all it could do, and then you would have to recharge it overnight, that would become part of my hi-fi ritual, right? I would go over to the rack, I would turn off the CD player, I would turn off the amp, I would turn off my active speaker, whatever I have, I turn off overnight. And then the next step would be to just plug that little channeling into a USB wall charger. And then next morning I unplug it, I turn everything back on and off I go. I mean, you know, you do this for a week or two and it becomes part of the ritual and it's no longer sort of this inconvenience that right now would bug you. Mm. I but mean, the other thing is, though, is that if I can do this with the Shanling, I can also do it with any phone. Right. So any phone could be a network endpoint in my rack. The advantage of the Shanling would be, it, it would be, yeah, if you don't have a third-party DAC, you could just come straight out of its three and a half mil headphone socket, run the shining at 100% volume, and go straight into your amplifier. So if all you had was, say, amp and speakers, and you were thinking about maybe buying a, a DAC or a network stream or something, what I'm saying is, is you could look at a node if that's all you do. If all you do is play music at home, maybe the node would be better. Don't ask me whether the DAC inside the node sounds better than the DAC and the Shanning. I've got no idea. And it's not a hair I really want to bother splitting. But if you do some outdoor listening, I think the Shanning might be a better bet because you can use the Shanning in the hi-fi rack when you're at home. And then if you want to go out, you just kind of unplug it and then take it out and plug a pair of headphones in instead. So I think... I mean, I'm just building on your ideas, Rajan, really, because yeah. so it's you, you've laid the foundation for this thinking, and then I've, I'm, I'm trying to take it a step further. Um, but yeah, that's as far as I've got. I haven't, well, apart from the little demo I just did now of Spotify, <laughs> I haven't really tried this, but I don't see any reason why it wouldn't work quite nicely. Well, I think that what this current generation of digital audio player benefits from is that it's basically a smartphone without the phone functionality. Yes. You can't make yeah. phone calls with it. You can't take pictures with it. But everything else is similar. Presumably, the, the sound quality determining bits are optimized for audio because the same money doesn't have to be split into telephone and you know picture taking functionality. So presumably, if we compare this $469 channeling to a $469 smartphone, this should win sonically, but maybe it, it wouldn't. I'm well, not sure. Over USB, it still might be better for one reason, especially if you're comparing it to a normal Android smartphone, because Android in its, in most incarnations of Android, a bit like a Mac have their own sort of audio system processing. And on most Android phones, with most apps, and I say this with most apps, I know there, is, there are exceptions, but the whatever you play back on that Android phone, what comes out of the USB socket is resampled to 48 kilohertz. Hmm. 
There is something called USB Audio Player Pro, which is an app that also streams from Tidal and Cobras. But like a lot of the portable players that we mentioned last week, the record labels won't let USB Audio Player Pro do offline content. So then you have to kind of go, well, I'll use the Kobo's app, I'll use the Tidal app. Now, I think, I think I remember that Tidal have worked around the Android operating system sample rate conversion. But then we're really into the weeds of something that's very nerdy, very technical. And I'm not even sure it has a super large impact upon sound quality. If you're an idealist, yes, you want what's called bit perfect audio. So if you play a 44.1 kilohertz file, that's the sample rate you want coming out of the USB socket. And if you play a 192, you want 192 coming out of your USB socket. And most Android phones don't do that. But and this, we know the Shanling does because my, does. my DAC has a sample rate receiver right. display. So it confirms that whatever I send out is what it receives. Right. Okay. And they have something, what's it called? AGLO, Android Global Something Output. Um, so basically, they've managed to reroute the digital audio signal from whichever app you're playing back music all the way out of the USB socket. So it might only be a theoretical advantage or it might be a real advantage with a marginal difference. I think it's worth kind of, I mean, I, I know where I put my money. I will put it into the, into the Shandling because I guess part of me is the idealist who wants to be a perfect playback mm -hmm. and it might have an impact on sound quality. I don't know because I've, you know, you can't take it out of your Google, my Google pixel phone. It's always there. You can't get around it iPhones don't have this problem. They are bit perfect out of their lightning socket. So you, at the moment, you need a lightning to USB adapter to, to do the same thing. So you could put an iPhone or even an iPad. Actually, the iPad is the best thing, especially if you've got an iPad with a USB-C socket on it, because then you can go straight out into a DAC. And I'll mention this as an aside. The iPad and the iPhone are by far the best way to play high-res out of Apple Music, because you get proper bit perfect playback which you don't get from mac os because it wants to resample to whatever's set in the audio midi setting and it doesn't adjust automatically and tv os that runs on an apple tv that's capped at 48 kilohertz apple music on a sonos device is capped at 48 kilohertz airplay is capped at 48 kilohertz even the old Airport Express is capped at 48 kilohertz. So you can't get high res out of any of those devices. You can on the Mac OS and the, the iPhone and iPad, but I think the, the iPad, I think, is the sweet spot for Apple Music mm. in that situation. But remote controlling it, I think, is a bit more of a problem because I don't know how you remote control an iPad. There's probably an app that does it, but um, yeah, it's just, there's just so many like, little detours that you often have to take with all this stuff. And I think that's the great thing about the Shandling is it doesn't force you to take those detours. I think it's pretty cool in that respect. So I think that even sort of idealistic audiophiles could think of something like this, especially for a second system. Yes. Yeah. And definitely. I see this also as like perfect for a pair of active speakers. Because you can literally go straight out, either USB or analog. You have the volume control right on the channeling. There we have to say it's a digital volume control, mm. I believe. I think it is, yeah. yeah. So depending on how much attenuation you invoke, you might be losing 
some resolution. But again, that could be offset by the fact that you have a very minimalist circuit signal pass now. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But like I said, for me now, this is what I use in my upstairs system, which is not really a cheap beginner system. But I realized I don't really need anything else. And the fact that this is something that I can hold in my hand to touch the screen, it also means that I don't need the big iMac screen. Yes, the iMac screen is really convenient, but I don't touch it. The interface is right. yeah. the keyboard and the mouse, mm -hmm. which I've gotten used to. But I don't find the channeling any more less convenient. Yes, I can't see you know, 60 album covers at a time like I can on, I don't know how many I can see on the IMAX screen, but it's big. There's lots mm -hmm. of covers at one time and on the channel, it's one. But to be honest, that I don't see this as a minor, as a major sort of black mark on it. I also find that this is something that my wife could use for mm. music because it is so easy to use. I don't have to explain how it works. It's intuitive, yes, yeah. And I think for, for anyone that is used to how a smartphone works, especially one that's based on Android, it's sort of second nature. They can get around the thing. Exactly, yes. Without it's, having to even read an owner's manual. Not that I got one, I don't think, was it? And if I did, it was very, very marginal. We don't need one because it, like- No, the, you don't. Even the, even the settings work just as they do on an Android phone. They're yeah. almost identical. There are a few extra sort of audio things that Shandling have put in, but m mostly it's the same as an Android phone all down from the top, little cog wheel. So yeah, it's super easy to use. I mean, I could give it to my mum and dad and they would know how to use it. And they would know to plug headphones in and they'd, they'd be away in minutes. Whereas, you know, Blue Sound Node, that's more of a challenge, you know? But I do want to add another thing, if I may, and I'm going to go on, like, I'm going to talk for about five, five, 10 minutes, if I may here, because at the end of the last podcast episode, I mentioned that I had ordered the new Sony 400 euro portable audio player, the NW306, which I think is a potential, what well, I thought was a potential rival to the Shanling. And I'm going to talk about it here because I don't like it. But I know people always grumble, oh, how can we never get you know negative reviews? Well, coming your way right now is a negative review, and it'll be short because I don't want to kind of just draw this out. But the little Sony NW, uh, what's it called? The A306 arrived, and it's a tiny, tiny little portable audio player. It's about the same size as the Shanling screen, but it's not as thick or as chunky. And it does have a micro SD card slot on the bottom, just like the Shanling, USB charging, just like the Shanling. And then also on the bottom is a three and a half mil headphone socket. And then on the top, there's nothing on the side. We've got playback buttons, volume up and down. They're click buttons rather than the wheel you get on the Shanling. There's also a very useful feature as a lock button. So you can lock off all the, the buttons on the side from being accidentally pressed in your pocket. And this thing runs Android 12, so it's a bit like the Shanling. You know, you boot it up and it starts into Android. And but yeah, but the Shanling runs Android 10. So slight different generation here. But the screen on this thing on the Sony, I think, is comparatively low res compared to the Shanling. I did have a little minor gripe with the Shanling, didn't I, about how it wasn't always super snappy and responsive. Well, if you use the Sony. <laughs> 
<laughs> get ready for some serious delay in pressing buttons or boot up or waiting for an app to do something because I've already, I mean, I've only had it a few days, but I've already experienced some hangs, some boot ups that take, I'm not joking, five minutes. I don't even know why. Or apps that take an age to start or I push play on something and it won't do anything for like five seconds. So the the interface, the user experience is slow. Yeah, the, the screen resolution isn't really it isn't really on par with the Shanling or certainly nowhere near a phone. In fact, I think the screen in this isn't much better than they put in the NWZX2, which I mentioned in the last episode, which is a portable audio player from 2016. So it's it's pretty basic. But the worst one, well, actually, I've got to give a shout out to Sony for doing something very cool in this, in that the battery life is, what's the battery life? It's over 30 hours. If you're careful with it, maybe if, if you're playing high res from, I don't know, an Apple Music app, it's going to be less than 30. But the battery life in this thing is huge because it doesn't use a normal off-the-shelf DAC chip. It's like a digital amplifier that drives the output stage. I did look on Sony's website for some specs, and they're pretty skinny. But it uses that S-Master X uh, way of, yeah, driving the output stage. There's no, yeah, there's no DAC. I won't labor that point, even though I just did. Um, but for me, the killer blow was when I connected a pair of headphones. Now I should contextualize this first. So I've got a pair of Sennheiser IE 600. It's a 600 euro ish pair of IEMs. And on the Shanling, when I connect them balanced to the Shanling, remember the Sony doesn't have a balanced connection, but with the, the Shanling it does. So I connect the, the Sennheiser to the Shanling using its balanced socket and I only really need to turn the volume to roughly 20%, 25%, depending upon the track, to get reasonably good volume. But also, as we said in the last podcast, power isn't just about getting the right volume level. It's about a sense of nourishment of your headphone and it feeling like it's being properly driven. Hold that thought. I'll come back to it. So balanced out of the Shanling into Sennheiser, roughly 20%. If I go single-ended... I need to push it up to about 30%, but no way near the top level of the volume control. Not even close. I would I would do serious damage to my hearing if I did that. Whereas if we move over to the Sony, I plugged it in the first time and I was just like, I had a what the fuck moment because the volume, I had to push it all the way. It goes past 100. It goes to 120, I think. I had to push it well north of 100 just to get an okay listening level it's like what the, this is just this is just rubbish what what you know people would put these two things together for sure and it's really unsatisfying so i thought hang on a minute i know i've got a pair of campfire andromeda upstairs which are one of the most sensitive iems on the planet so i got those out of their little zip case plugged those in now they fared better so i only needed to push the volume to about 50% 60% but they sounded super thin like there wasn't enough sort of fleshiness going on and this is the thing about these sony daps now that it might not be an affliction of the more expensive ones i don't know because i don't own one of the um the thousand euro plus sony daps and never had have but this little nw3006 sounds how i remember the zx2 sounding in that it sounds like candy floss or fairy floss so you get lots of tiny strands and details and you can see, yeah, good separation. But
but there's no weight to the sound. There's no, there's no muscle. There's no fat. There's no meat. So it's just, it's all brain and, and no stomach or no heart or no chest or no lungs or whatever. It's just gutless, even with the sensitive Andromeda. So. And are we sure that you were not by mistake somehow stuck in some low gain mode? No, I wasn't. I did, I did check this, but I just. That's disappointing then. Well, it was, yeah, super disappointing. But the thing is, I did look on Sony's website for the output power and they quote it. Hang on, I had it a minute ago. Here we are. So they write maximum power output 0.4 to 1.1 milliwatts into 32 ohms. 0.4 to 1.1 milliwatts. Now, if we go to the Shandling, I'm pretty sure that's a couple of hundred at least, isn't it? What was that? I did look. Yeah, 260, 260 milliwatts into 32 ohms. So that spec on the Sony website mirrors my experience. Super low output power. So either it's for people who just listen to lightweight music. And not, I'm not criticizing people doing that. Like if it isn't a female vocal with acoustic guitar or string quartets, I think it would be great for that. As long as you have an easy, uh, not, not even an easy to drive headphone, a super unbelievably easy to drive headphone, or you listen at very, very quiet levels. But I, I just think that this, this thing is a, is a, is a, a complete swing and a miss, especially when sat next to the Shanling. I mean, yeah, the Shanling is a bit bigger, it's a bit chunkier, it's a bit heavier, but in almost every respect, I much prefer the Shanling over the Sony. And I didn't expect the Delta to be quite so wide because I'm a big fan of Sony stuff and I love generally what they do. But this thing is going back as soon as I get to Germany because I bought it from Amazon Germany. I'm not paying the shipping from Portugal to Germany when I can just pay it when I get back to a DHL office next week. So that's my mini negative review of the the sony nw306 if you've got one please don't be offended but i just think it's it's a major disappointment which is surprising when we think just how much bigger sony's engineering resources must be than channeling but then by the same token we can also say well apple has probably the biggest engineering department in the world for the product categories that they focus on and that doesn't necessarily mean that the audio quality is always what a serious audiophile expects. I guess it's just right. a matter of focus in the, the focus group. Like, what's the audience that they were after? So I think Sony's audience is the people that go, wow, at the battery life, as I did. Wow, over 30 hours, that's fantastic. So, I, yeah, I'm, I got suckered by that. And also the small, the size of it, it's so, it's lovely. Actually, it's, it's not much bigger than the original iPod Nano. So, I mean, that's going back a bit, if you remember those. But I think from us, yes, it, it would fit in a top shirt pocket and not distort it too much because it's not crazy heavy. It has a little sort of lanyard loop on the bottom as well. Um, and it's it's really nicely made. I would say, I mean, that's the old advertising adage that I've mentioned before on this podcast. There's no such thing as a bad product, just a bad price. For me, this is a 200 euro portable player, and then it would be fine. But at 400 euros, no way. 
Well, there's John's not rave, but flame, I guess, right? <laughs> I guess you'd call it that, yeah. You know, one thing that I would maybe like to mention again, I believe we did last time, is just the, um, not just the entertainment value, but the, um, the ed educational benefit of one feature that the Shandling has, and competitors may have it as well, which is the, the U-meter option that actually displays recorded dynamic range. And if I set this right now on the track that I have playing on mine, the VU meter has zero on the right, zero would sort mm. of be max, and then you have just a little bit above, and then all the way over to the left is minus 60 dB. So there's a range of 60 dB of recorded dynamic range. Mm -hmm. And on this, album that I'm playing right now, the lowest recorded level is at like minus 45. Mm -hmm. And then it doesn't really go much above minus 10, like it might max out like at minus five. Okay. So that gives us a good 30 dB of recorded dynamic range. But now if I do that same thing with a standard pop song, I'd be lucky if I get below minus 10. The needle will right. primarily flicker between minus 10 and zero. And I think this is a nice feature for music lovers that don't really know what recorded dynamic range is and how much music is actually really, really squashed dynamically. And here, with like one swipe or one push on this virtual button on the screen, you can see it. So is this in the, the Shanling music app, Sujan? Yes. So that's it's, so it's right it's right below the, the top of the screen. Mm. And uh, there's two icons. One looks like a list with three lines, and then the second one is like a little square with like a, a half moon and a line ah, to signify you know, the moving needle. Do you know what that completely I completely passed me by. I was so fixated on on the uh, the absence of gapless playback, but now I'm looking at it with a Pink Floyd, and it's quite it's quite a nice VU meter, isn't it? Now that yeah. see, I look at that and go, okay, if that was in my rack as a, a network streamer, with that being displayed, I would think that was pretty damn cool. And you have three different color options for that display. It doesn't oh, have to be orange. I think it can be red and it can be blue. You have to go into like the settings to change that. But I think it's quite nice, this sort of golden, yellowy, cream hue. I think it's, that's really cool. I had yeah. no idea that was there. That's really funny. Well, that's good. I mean, you're right. From an educational point of view, to, for people to see the dynamic range of their music, I think that's, yeah, that's very cool indeed. Because a lot of people don't know how to look that up. You know, they may have to go online and type in the track that they have, and then a, a, a database will tell them what the recorded dynamic range of that music is. Yeah, there's on an my, app you can use as well. Yeah. On my iMac, Audiovana or Pure Music, they have a display that will actually show you. But otherwise, I wouldn't know either. Yeah, yeah. I think Rune has a display of dynamic range of locally stored content, but it's a different, I think it's a different measurement scale to that which is used by the, the dynamic range lo uh, loudness database online. So, um, yeah, you, those, so those two don't really kind of connect properly but does audivana give you the dynamic range of stuff streamed from cobas 
I don't know because I have an older version of Audiovana that, that that's only good for locally hosted files because I did uh. not update my IMAX operating system specifically because I did not want my Audiovana version or my pure music version to suddenly not work. Okay. And then I would have to update those because that happened in the past repeatedly that I would have an old version of pure music, which is how I got started out on my iMac. And then iMac, I mean, Apple would update the operating system and suddenly pure music would have some fits. Certain things didn't work. And then they would have to issue a, a firmware patch to mm. fix those issues. And they were always sort of playing catch up. And I finally decided, this is ridiculous. Everything is working just fine if I can just stop the updates that change everything. So I made sure that I disabled Apple's sort of auto-update feature. So I'm stuck on a very old Mac OS mm. that plays just fine with Audiovana, but I cannot upload the newest Audiovana version that then would interface with stream music because it doesn't it supersedes my operating system. So are you using the subscription-based Audivana or the, the one-time-only payment Audivana? Uh, when I bought it, I don't, I don't think they had the subscription at the time yet. I have the subscription-based one on my Windows uh, work machine, the one that gotcha. I'm using right now to look right. at you. The one on my iMac, which I think now might be eight years old. So that's as old, at least as old as my Audivana program that I bought. No, I bought it one time. So it's Audiovana. I, I could update it up to 3.0, mm -hmm. but the, the most current version is like 3.5 plus, and that does not work on my Apple operating system. Yeah, because I don't have a MacBook in my, well, in my rack or my Calyx unit and haven't had for years. So I never use those kind of apps anymore, really. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do dip my tie in the water every once in a while, but I did see the the outrage, the uproar that the subscription model caused amongst the Audivana faithful that I thought, oh, good, that's, um, <laughs> that's going to take some time to settle down, but I don't know whether it has or not. But You know, you mentioned before about that if I was to buy a display, an Apple display, it would just show a command line with some of these music servers. Well, mm -hmm. I reviewed a 20,000 euro music streamer server that was running the euphony software but the peculiar mm -hmm. thing was that in order to for that music server to access the files that were on my imac i had to go through the euphony server somewhere okay. in in europe wherever they had its station on a big server farm and every once in a while, I couldn't actually log on to the server. Their server was not available. And then I couldn't play the music that I owned, that I looked at on my hard drive, going through Euphony, because their server wasn't accessible. So then I had to go right. back to Audiovana. And then I thought, well, this is really peculiar. I don't think I would buy this server that was married to this particular interface, the Euphony music server interface, that is optimized mm. for best sound quality because it defeats all background processes. But the requirement to play back local files was still that you had to be able to access the server. Now they have since told me that that's actually not the case, but mm. the people that had actually sent me the hardware never told me how to do it properly. Uh, okay. But, but that was my 
complaint at the time of that kind of headless music server streamer that was using a web browser interface mm. that was hosted on a server that for some reason or another, I couldn't always access. It sounds strange that it would have to phone home to come back to your house to go to your iMac to pull a file. Doesn't it? Yeah. Doesn't it? But, but this, is, this is a bit like Rune. And when they upgraded to, was it Rune 2.0 and introduced Rune Arc, the change there was that Rune no longer plays local files stored on your hard drive, attached to the core, at some point after your internet goes out. So when I mean, when I mean at some point, it could be five minutes after you no longer have local file playback, or it could be two hours afterwards. They guarantee no minutes of mm -hmm. local file playback once the net goes out. And a lot I of people are very upset by that. Yeah. And I understand well, why people are upset. I really do. I mean, Rune has their own engineering reasons as to why this is the case. And I... People gave me a hard time actually about this because they said, well, you know, you didn't push Rune hard enough on this, but I, I can't speak to that technical argument because I don't know what it is. I mean, right. Rune said that they need to advance the search functionality of their software. And in order to do that, they had to move a lot of stuff to the cloud, which means internet connection always. And that's as far as I got. Now, I can't say, well, if you did this, you could do that. So when people thump the table and go, well, I think, you know, Rune should be able to do this. Well, then obviously you're more privy to the inner workings of Rune's new architecture than I am, because I don't know what it should be able to do. I mean, I think it's very easy to be an armchair expert, you know, and say it should be able to do that thing that I want it to do, because I want it to do that, right? Of course. So I, I, I do understand the frustration, and but I think Plex is the same. Like if I'm playing music from Plex across my home network and then internet goes out for a maybe more than an hour, then the local file playback falls over, I think. I think the last time I tested it was a couple of years ago. Maybe it's improved since then. But there are a lot of quirks associated with streaming in the home, outside of the house. So there's, there's always stuff to overcome. And the thing is, there always has been. Always has been, ever since I got my first squeeze box in 2002. Because back then, the big thing was gapless playback. And well, for me, I, know, I never grew out of that. But but at the time, I think it could only play back gaplessly from OG Vorbis files. So I, I'm not joking. I converted my entire library, I think it was Flax back then, yeah, to OG Vorbis and mirrored it. It was such a pain. So every time I added a new CD rip to my library, I created a Flax version, then an OG Vorbis version so I could get gapless. Madness. Absolute madness. You know, but the first iPods didn't do gapless. It wasn't for like three or four years that they didn't do them. Now, let me ask you this. Does this bother you at all whatsoever that Big Brother is always watching when you do anything on the internet? Yeah, yes, yeah, I see what you mean. So, like, basically, Spotify knows everything that I play. So does Tidal, so does Cobas. Um, the thing is, is that, and I think this is the case for most controversial situations in the world. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna invoke one of those now, but I'm not trying to turn this into a game of politics, right? So the meat industry, and I'm, I'm a meat eater. I know you're not, but the meat industry is still successful because 
even though there are videos online and there's plenty of information about what goes on in abattoirs, most meat consumers, and I'm one of them, we look the other way because we want what we want. So we want that meat more than we want to kind of consider what goes on in an abattoir or with animals in general or pig farms or chicken farms and things like that. So, and I know this sounds like a kind of dramatic thing, but what I'm saying is, is that, so when Google is providing us with a free Gmail service, and that might come with a certain degree of big brother surveillance, either overt or covert, Google is relying on us to look the other way. And it's the same with Spotify. Yes, we're paying for the service. Yes, we know that Spotify is kind of monitoring in whatever way, way you want to interpret that word, what we listen to. But we want that service more than we're worried about the privacy intrusion. So we look the other way, right? So I think I'm one of those people who looks the other way or doesn't look at it fully. However, when I play a CD or I play a record, I do register the fact every time now that nobody knows I'm playing this album or this 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 piece of music, apart from maybe my neighbor across the street. Um <laughs> And I do enjoy that. I do enjoy the the feeling of privacy that that playback gives me. But then the convenience of having every song I own as soon as I leave the house with my phone or with a shanling is, is so great. And I think it's so wonderful to have access to all that music for essentially for free. Because let's face it, Spotify makes music free. It does. 10 euros a month, I'm sorry, that's free. I know for some people, 10 euros a month is a lot of money, and I don't want to be glib about that 10 euros, but 10 euros used to be one album for your lifetime, buying a CD, right? And now it's everything always, pretty much, that's ever been recorded in your pocket, no matter where you are, for as long as you keep paying at 10 euros a month. I mean, it's astonishing. That, that kind of technological advancement is amazing. Well, let me ask you this. Have you noticed a change in your listening habits from the days of physical media, where you play the CD beginning to end, unless you bother to delete certain tracks, you know, you program the CD player to skip from track, to wipe out track two, four, and six, and only play the rest, or playing a record beginning to end, flipping to the other side, playing it beginning to end. Now that a lot of your music listening is cloud-based, do you find that your listening habits have changed? Like you're picking one track and then you're going to a different artist and a different album and you're playing a different track and you never listen to like an artistic work with like say 10 or 12 tracks in the sequence that the artist intended. Actually, no, because I am staunch about doing what you've just said. So I, I'm an albums person. I always have been and I think I always will be. So if I commit to something, even with Rune or with Spotify with Tidal, I play the whole album or EP. I'm not a twitchy listener who's, you know, got the iPad or the phone and go, oh, what about this track? And what about this, this track? That kind of behavior drives me crazy. And I'm very mindful not to engage in it. So if I play a CD, it's the whole album. If I play a stream, it's the whole album. But where the difference has materialized is that it's made me sometimes a bit lazy. So I'll go into like recently added to Rune and just be cycling through what's on the first page. And this is why I was a little bit upset with Rune when they moved the Discover tab. There's a Discover tab. It used to be on the side. 
So you could click that and it would give you a random selection or effectively random selection of music from your hard drive library. So I think it should be called rediscover actually, because it allowed me to rediscover things that I'd forgotten about. And I love that, but now it's way down the homepage on Rune and that bugs me. Because if it was higher up, I probably I would probably push that first of all every single time I fire up Rune. So uh yeah, in terms of selecting what to play, you have to be more mindful with streaming services than just kind of going, I'll play that thing that I played yesterday because it was the last thing that I added to my Rune server. Or I mean, Spotify does show you the last things you played. It says jump back in or jump right back in. But it's really, I think one of the challenges for people like me and maybe you, Sajan, is that streaming, and it probably would, they'll probably never solve this because I think it's such a marginal case or edge case, is that we want to, well, I want to be constantly remind, be reminded of albums that I've loved in the past and I've just don't have at the forefront of my mind. So if I think of uh, the like the Rakes debut album or I don't know, I'm just trying to think of, see, this is the thing, like when somebody pushes a phone in front of you and says, play something, you can play anything. And I don't know about you, but my, my brain just decides that it wants, it goes entirely blank and I can't think of a damn thing. But if I've got some visual stimulus, like a, a wall of CDs, wall of vinyl, I can very quickly find something I want to play because I'm being reminded of, Oh, you know, old classics really. And streaming doesn't do that very well. Rune were close with the Discover tab, but they've gone to more of a sort of streaming service skinned interface. Or and so the hard drive people like me, we're the dinosaurs really. We've been pushed to one side, I think, a little bit. So Rune, if you're listening to this, please put that Discover tab back somewhere near the top of the the UI, please, and call it Rediscover if you have to, if it makes you happy, you know, or things that you have forgotten about in your library and make it just about what's stored on the hard drive that, that the Rune core can see. So yeah, it, it's changed my habits in that respect because when you have access to everything, you don't want to play anything sometimes or you can't think of anything. Sometimes having fewer choices this is the tyranny of choice isn't it it's well documented psychological effect fewer things makes it easier in many ways to live with them like i've only got like what 15 albums in front of me right now vinyl records because i haven't bought many since i've been here and i brought some with me and i find that much more of a manageable number of records to deal with whereas my wall of records in berlin i look at it and go it's just like a blizzard, you know, it's just like, what, what, where do I start? So <laughs> it's kind of yeah. like, you know, you go to a Chinese restaurant and they have this massive menu, yeah. you know, 200 different things. And you see people spending 10, 15 minutes, they can't figure out what they want. And then you go next door to the, let's say the Italian, and they have a two page menu, special of the day, maybe like three different dishes, but there's not more than 15 different dishes on there. And people decide in like a minute or two, it's easier when there's less choice. True. It is. And I prefer that kind of restaurant where they kind of rotate, say, three or four dishes, you know, every couple of weeks, whatever. That's that's much more enjoyable for me because I hate pouring over a Chinese, like number 327, please. No, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not doing it. Mm -hmm. Well, I do, I do it, but I, I tend to pick the things that I've always enjoyed. I'm much less likely to take a risk or try something new when there's a shit ton of options on display. Because it just it, it pushes my brain into its safety zone. And safety zone is like, order what you had last time. 
because you knew that was good and you don't have to pour through all these other options. Whereas if I go to a restaurant that maybe only has four mains and all of them are different to the last time I, I went, I'm thinking of a restaurant in Berlin right now called La Maisere, which is a fresh, French restaurant in Charlottenburg. And it's fantastic. And they rotate their menu. So every time you go, it's like, okay, I've got a, I've got a meat choice, a vegetarian choice and a fish choice. So it's never the same. So I'll go, oh, I'll have that meat one, or maybe I'll have the fish one sometimes. And so it broadens my experience more than the big menu of the Chinese restaurant, which is probably about a kilometer away. And I just, it doesn't broaden my experiences. Isn't that funny? It's, it's really, mm -hmm. it's a weird bit of psychology, but it's, that's how it works for me anyway. Now, what's your attitude of remuneration for the artist? Oh, that bugs so the me difference, a lot. If we go to Bandcamp and we buy an album and we realize that if we are spending, we can actually on Bandcamp, we can determine how much we want to spend. There might be yes. a minimum amount, yes. but if we feel like we want to pay more, if five euros for an album is, seems ridiculously low, you know, and we say, okay, let's give this artist 15 euros and we realize mm -hmm. that Bandcamp will only take off the top, I don't know what it is, 10 or 15%, but the artist gets the lion's share. Yes, yeah. If we go to a shop and we buy a CD, or we order one mail order, or we buy, I buy most of my digital files through Cobas. Mm. To be honest, I don't actually know how much of, let's say, uh, 12 or 15 euro album purchase the album, the album's artist actually gets. But I'm dead sure that it's a lot more than they get for a song that's streamed with Spotify or Tidal. So I much prefer to actually make sure that the artist that I like get some money from me, mm -hmm. which is why I, that's another reason why I prefer to own the music because I'm a trained musician. Two of my siblings make their living being musicians. They are mm -hmm. orchestra musicians uh, in, in, an opera or, in an opera orchestra. So they're down in the pit where you don't see them. You just sort of see the action on stage. Mm. But I'm very aware of how many musicians in Germany leave the conservatory each year. They have finished their education and now they're looking for jobs. And I know how hard it is for musicians, not just classical musicians, they could be jazz, could be anything, how hard mm. it is to actually make a living. And it bothers the shit out of me that basically, like we said before, a 10 euro a month Spotify subscription, that's basically free. You're getting music for nothing. Mm -hmm. If you go to YouTube, it's completely free. And there's people that get their concerts, their live concerts recorded without their permission. Mm -hmm. And the next day, there's a YouTube video of that concert at reasonably good sound quality even, and good sort of picture quality, mm -hmm. which in one way is fantastic because you get to hear artists that you never even knew existed that just played two cities over in some nightclub. But then you realize that while you're enjoying the music, that artist, first of all, wasn't asked for permission to be recorded, and they mm -hmm. don't get a penny. Which is one of the reasons why I don't really listen to streaming music. Right. I do a little bit of it on my desktop to discover. And then when I, each time I like something on Cobas, I put a heart on it and it immediately goes into my favorites folder. Right. And then when I have a day where I don't have a lot of work to do, I will go through my favorites folder and I will listen to each and every album that I have in there beginning to end. 
to decide whether there's enough good tracks on there that I want to buy. And I will buy the whole album. I will not just buy the individual tracks that I like. I will buy the whole album. And then we had, when I realized that there's one that I put there in the spur of the moment, I put a heart on it, but it was really only one track. And now that I listen to it the second time, I don't really like it. I unheart it and it disappears. Right. But that's how I listen to most of the music that I actually spend time with. It's like right. I discover it. If I don't like it right away, within the first five seconds, I realize this artist, that style, that album is not for me. I'm not even going to try the second track because usually they put the killer track as number one. Sometimes, yeah. Usually. I mean, I mean and very often a good track is number seven. That's for me, that's, that's how it has turned <laughs> out. I go to number seven. Okay. But to just sort of listen in the background or even seriously streaming, I don't do because I find that rips off the artist and I find it really unfair and i'm really aware of it because like yourself i consider myself a content creator and even though people read my content for free somehow i have to get paid because i can't afford to do this for free and i can't afford to work eight hours a day seven days a week and do this i love doing it but i also have to put money on the table i'm very aware that the musicians are in the same boat and they actually have less opportunities to um to find an audience than I do now in my little field. I have an established audience, but if I was a musician right now, cutting my own video, and I wanted lots of people to see it, there's things I have to do. Mm-hmm. And then how do I monetize that? Can I actually charge people to watch my video? Now, some big orchestras, I know more about classical because that's my background, but the Berlin Philharmonic, they have mm-hmm. their own channel. And you can actually see a YouTube video professionally edited and mastered of live concerts, but you subscribe to it. So there is some kind of, the musicians get something back. It's not completely free. But streaming, especially if it's low resolution over the internet, is for all intents and purposes free, which means that only the very, very biggest artists, the most popular ones that get listened to the most, make what I would consider a reasonable income. The rest is just peanuts. Yeah, I think it's criminal the way... Uh, I don't want to say if it's Spotify or it's Apple Music or, it's, or if Tidal's better right. or Cobra. No, they're all not paying enough. And they're not paying enough because the market now will no longer tolerate anything more than 10 bucks a month. If they'd come in in 2008 with saying to people, hey, it's 50 bucks a month for this service, then... The, the benchmark now would be 50 bucks a month because people would have still snapped the industry's hand off to go, yes, give me some of that. I'll have every mu- music album ever recorded for 50 bucks a month. No problem. But because they were competing with iTunes when it first came in and it was a new technology and uptake was slow, they had to bring it in at 10 or 12 or whatever it was. And it's never going to change from that because people don't want to pay more. And when I say people, I mean, most people, you know, you, I hear people grumbling about Tidal costing 20 bucks a month in their territory. Um, okay, okay, if you're on the breadline or you're unemployed, I understand the angst. But if you're employed, I'm sorry, no, because the artist needs to get paid and the streaming services really need that. I think it's a revenue problem. And I don't think, well, I know when the streaming services first got started, they gave chunks of stock as payment for catalogs to the labels. And then the labels didn't share that stock or the dividends on that stock or the sale of that stock with the artist. It didn't kind of flow down down the uh, 
what's the word down the through the system so now we're in a situation where you've got parliamentary inquiries in the uk into the state of streaming and you know artist revenues it's it's a pittance and it's it's shit and people go well you know like you know netflix is the same they go, no it's not netflix is nowhere near the same because if netflix were like spotify it would be every single movie more or less ever made you'd have access to everything and that would be astonishing and there 10 bucks a month would be nowhere near enough again but netflix is like a selection isn't it it's whoever decides now i think streaming should be like that personally you know or an album would live for like a month on streaming and after that you had to buy it or maybe it doesn't come on streaming for a month and therefore the early adopters have to buy it but personally i think I'm talking from a fairly privileged position in that I, I can afford to make this stand and have these principles. Because if I think back to when I was 25 and I was broke, I wouldn't be so, quite so self-righteous or righteous about how much artists get paid because there's no way I'd be able to pony up any more money. But now if I like an album, as you do, you buy it from Cobas, I'll go and buy the vinyl LP or the CD. Sometimes I even buy both because I can afford to do it. And I don't just do it so the artist gets paid. I like the physical format. A lot of electronic music that I like doesn't come out on CD anymore, although that's going to change in the future because the vinyl backlog is so so long. So I have to buy the vinyl. And some, yeah, some stuff I just buy the CD because it's cheaper, especially if it's a double album or triple album. But I usually, yeah, buy about 10 or 15, maybe sometimes even 20 albums a month. So Now, as a, as a non-vinyl guy, let me ask you this. How many plays... Do you get mm. out of a out of a record that you take care of before it starts to develop audible I've never signs heard of use? No. Either I don't play them enough, I'd have never heard it, never heard that kind of erosion okay. really take place. And even on records that I bought secondhand, I mean, yes, yeah, sometimes if something's been smashed to death, then yeah, you're going to hear it. But generally, most records are pretty resilient. I don't know. It's that's to me that's so. A, it's not really an argument, right? No. Not that, not that I've noticed. I mean, uh, uh, mm -hmm. it's like the CD rot argument against CDs. Again, it's such an edge case. But audiophiles love to blow up edge cases and make them a big thing because that's what they want to talk about. So it's important to them Have you ever gotten a CD? Have you ever gotten uh, a CD that went bad? One. I think one. Maybe. But even then, uh, it's it's got these and, wobbly and lines on bad? it. It stopped playing all together no it actually still plays fine but it, it looks it looks like it's gone yellow so it used to be obviously ah. a silver disc and now it's all yellow and and it looks like somebody spilled coffee all over it but it still plays fine now i know mm. people have had cases of cd rot but i don't think it's a huge thing well i will admit to the one thing that i have noticed was micro sd cards not just micro also the full-size cards that we put into a camera that files can corrupt i have no idea why but after a while they can, which is one argument that I use why I prefer buying smaller cards. If I spend the money and the time to populate a one or two terabyte card, and after one or two years, certain tracks stop playing, I wouldn't be very happy. If it's a, if it's a card that costs me 12 euros, yeah, so, you know, what? It's, yeah. so what? If it only lasts two, two years, I, I consider that you know a fair investment. Yeah. So, Jean, I think we're going to have to bring this podcast episode to a close, even though I'm enjoying this very carefree chat, if only because my laptop battery is about to die. 
which is why I was looking forward. I was like, okay, what's that at now? It's like an, it's eight percent. It's on fumes. So I'm sorry because yeah. I was quite enjoying the freewheeling conversation we're having, but yeah, it's eight percent. So I'm going to have to say thank you very much, Sajan, for joining us again. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk again soon. All right. <laughs> You have been listening to the Darko Audio Podcast with me, John Darko, and Six Moons' Srajan Iban. This episode was produced by Nick McCorriston, and music came from Ben Pitt.